Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Industry 4.0 Community Podcast by 4.0 Solutions for Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. We are live. Uh, so uh, a couple things uh, real quick. I hope everyone is doing well. A um, couple things. Uh, this is going to be the first time I'm doing a live stream where I am not watching the YouTube uh, stream live where I'm not, I can't see who's in the chat and I can't read the chat. And that's because we had a spammer last week that was really distracting me or I will like get sidetracked with people who are asking questions in the chat. So we're changing the way we produce um, the podcast a little bit this week, because right now, if you look, uh, we really we have three uh primary methods that people watch the podcast. Our audience continues to grow. Um, I think we're getting, it's over 2000 views a, a, a per podcast now, like within 14 days. Um, you've got people watching on YouTube. You got people watching on LinkedIn, watching the live stream on LinkedIn. And then you have uh, just a huge chunk of people who are um, listening on Apple podcasts and all that kind of stuff. So this week, um, I'm a, I'm a tad bit fired up and I'm going to have uh, Cheryl, um, on the chat here, uh, join me on the podcast here in a minute. We're going to talk about the state of industry 4.0 in 2022. Um, Hey Mario, how's it going? Tomas, Michael, uh, Alan Ramsey, MK ultra, um, the point, uh, how's it going everybody? Y you know, we uh, go ahead and bring Cheryl in Josh, please. Thank you. Um, Hey, Cheryl, how's it going? Um, so the one of the things that I've been observing, okay, is uh, we were having this conversation um, over the last two weeks about the just the state of Industry 4.0 in 2022. We should have seen a big shift since the supply chain issues of the pandemic. We should have seen a big shift. And we are seeing it in some sectors. We're seeing it in some organizations, but where there are other there are other sectors that are really lagging behind. And today we're going to talk about that. Like, what is the current state of Industry 4.0? Why does it matter? You know, we're, you know, what are we actually seeing with our own eyes? What are the things we're seeing with our own eyes? Uh, and, and when Cheryl and I were prepping for this podcast a couple of hours ago, she was asking me some questions um, Th that prompted answers I think she wanted the community to hear. So I was like, you know, Cheryl, why don't you just come on and and ask the questions the way, you know, ask in, in you know, on behalf of the community. So um, that's what we've done. I, got, I do have a couple of quick announcements I want to touch on at the beginning um, instead of at the end. But um, um, MES Boot Camp. So MES Boot Camp starts September 17th. The response to the boot camp has been nothing short of holy shit. We had no idea this many people were going to want to go through the boot camp. Okay, that's if there was any way, any way I could say the response, the the it has been a overwhelming response. So clearly, we should have done the boot camp a little earlier. There's a huge undertaking here. I want to talk about a couple of things real quick, and then I'm going to bring Cheryl in, and we're going to talk about Industry 4.0. So MES Bootcamp starts September 17th. It's five sessions, uh, goes through the end of November. It's going to be every other Saturday.
for the most part, it'll be every other Saturday. We may end up having two two weeks between the sessions, but uh, the sessions will each be four, four and a half hours. Um, and we're going to teach you how to build a core MES system using Ignition, SQL, and Python. Okay. A couple of FAQs that we got in the mastermind session last week. Uh, is Igni How important will Ignition be to building this? The answer is not that important. You're going to be able to decouple Ignition. We're just using Ignition as the IoT platform. That's it. So if you wanted to take the data we're going to generate and connect it to something else in the ecosystem, we're going to do that through Ignition just because Ignition, you know, it's an open platform for solving problems. It just works. But we could use other platforms. You're going to be able to decouple it. The SQL component and the Python component is the stuff that matters. Okay. Because um, we've gotten a lot of questions like, hey, why wouldn't I just use Cepasoft modules? Well, we're teaching you how not to use modules. Okay. Um, and you would need to use Ignition as your IoT platform if you wanted to use Cepasoft. And the Ignition's not important to this at all. It, 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 it serves a function, but we can, we can enter in any other platform, any other open platform that supports our technology um, for this. So, um, but anyway, if you're interested in the MES bootcamp, I suspect most of the people who wanted to sign up have signed up by now because I, I know we were well over 100 and something, you know, I think we're definitely over 110 participants now. It's a it's a, a huge class. Um, it's it's a massive undertaking. I mean, uh, believe me, I'm, I'm spending I'm going to be spending between now and September 17th. 90 percent of my work will be in in building this uh um, this course. So um, we're super excited about it. Mastermind group is super excited about it. Everyone's excited. So uh, if you guys are interested in learning how to build a core MES system using SQL, Python, and Ignition, you can go to uh, iot.university iot forward slash MES hyphen bootcamp. Josh will put the link in there or whatever. Um, uh, one other question that I got, which was, what does my technical skill need to be? Okay. So in order for me to do this, all right, you need to be, you need to be fluent and proficient. Okay. In two of the three pillars. So there's going to be three technical components, SQL, Python, and ignition. Um, if you're in the mastermind program, which is where we teach you how to lead digital transformation initiatives, we encourage you, even if you're not going to build the system, you absolutely should passively be a part of this. You should sign up and you should sit through the development. Why? So you'll get a chance to see what it is the developers are doing, the types of things that developers do when they are building capabilities for the digital transformation initiatives that you are leading. So you should be aware, even if you're just the leader, you're just the scrum master, you're the non-technical resource, mm -hmm. you should still, this is a, a very unique opportunity for you to see with your own eyes for 20, 21, 22 hours, what it is your developers are actually doing, okay? And, and the challenges they run into when you make a minor change to a requirement, okay? So it would be incredibly invaluable for you to sit through, even if you don't build the system, but to passively observe. And if you're in Mastermind, this is included in your tuition. It doesn't cost you anything. So um, you have no reason not to sit through it, okay? Um, but if you're a technical resource, you need to be fluent in two of the three pillars. So if you don't know, you know, you, you're, you know what Ignition is, but you've never worked in it, but you have, you would say you're fluent with SQL and you're fluent with Python, you're going to be fine. If, you, if you're fluent with SQL 
fluid with ignition, but you don't really know Python that well, you're going to be fine. If you owe ignition in Python, you don't really know SQL that well, you're going to be fine. Okay. You just need to know two or three. You'll be able to get through. I'm going to be doing all the development live. So you're going to see me build everything. There won't, the, the only thing that you're not going to see me build actually live well, there, there will be some Python functions. If there's a function that's going to require more than 20 lines of code, I'm going to write that beforehand. So I'm going to come in with it, but you will get a copy, a text copy of that function that you will just paste in. Okay. One last thing about the MES bootcamp when we're developing Python. Okay. We are, I was explaining this to the team uh, the other day. How are you going to develop this? Like, you're going to have people who are super advanced Python developers, and you're going to have people who have no, basically no Python experience. How are you going to write Python code in a way where everyone understands? So here's the best way to understand it. If I'm a super advanced Python developer, let's say you're the, that's the equivalent of being a senior in high school. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, I just have basic knowledge of Python. That's the equivalent of being in third grade we're going to write all of our Python code for a seventh grader. So for example, we will not write any classes. Everything's going to be function based. The super advanced person can go back and create the classes they want on their own, but we're going to do it function based because that's easier and it'll make it so that the third grader will understand what we're doing. And the senior will also understand what we're doing and we'll see the technical gaps that they can add on to. Okay. Um, so anyway, th I just want to touch on there was a I, we've gotten a ton of ton of re comments requests. Hey, can you answer this? Answer that. And I want to make sure I include it in the podcast at the front end so people get their questions answered. And hopefully that reduces the number of questions that we're getting. Uh, Jeremy Tate, afternoon. Excited to hear today's conversation on 4.0. Do you think the recent events of 2020 to 2022 are going to help companies realize they may need to take more steps towards industry 4.0 and breaking down discipline silos? I hope so, Jeremy. But part of what I'm going to be bitching about today are the horrific leaders that we have in industry who are holding their organizations back. Okay. And I'm going to give you some specific examples. I won't call anybody out by name except for probably Jim Farley and Mary Barra, who both deserve to be fired by their board of directors effective five days ago. Um, they are horrific examples of leadership in a transformative technological age. Um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm gonna talk about this. We, we are paying the price for not allowing General Motors to go broke right now. We are, we are paying the price as in the West, we are paying the price for not allowing General Motors to go out of business. We should have allowed them to go out of business. Um, Ford wouldn't have gone out of business, but um, had General Motors gone out of business, Ford would have acquired a lot of, there would have been massive changes at Ford um, with a massive influx of new resources where they would have been able to replace, they would have been able to replace the, uh, um, they would have been able to replace some of their legacy talent that is being, that is holding Ford back. Okay. Uh, and I'm yes, definitely going to be naming names, Cheryl, uh, Eric Forsgren, uh, Forsgren, I won't be able to attend the live bootcamp sessions. Will the sessions be posted at IOT.university? Yes. So you will have access. So just like any of the other sessions we do, if you're a member of MES Bootcamp, you will you will have access to uh, you will have access to the IOT or the MES Bootcamp as if it's any other course. 
Okay, so you'll be able to go back and watch the videos. You'll have all the resources. We will actually be posting all the code uh, as a as documents um, in, in the course itself. So yes, Eric, if you can't watch it live, why well, I, I strongly encourage you to watch it, do as much of it live as you possibly can so I can answer your direct questions that you might have. You will be able to go back and, and handle it just like any other module. And Paul Kopchak, hey, super chat. Thank you, Paul, my man. Glad to be back and hear Walker live once more. Excited for MES Bootcamp. Always great content for three years. I'm going to answer. I'm going to come back to Jeremy. So, Josh, will you keep Jeremy Tate's question ready to bring back up on the screen uh, as Cheryl and I get through the process? Right. Um, actually, let me answer MK Ultra's question here. Um, am I right to assume it's more valuable to join Mastermind than to purchase the MES Bootcamp standalone since the Bootcamp is included in Mastermind? Um, so the answer is what I would say is this, if you are planning on doing mastermind at some point and you, and you want to do MES bootcamp, yes, you're going to, you're, I mean, you're definitely going to get more bang for your buck if you join mastermind and, and get the bootcamp. So, and we have seen, I, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I would say probably, and, and Josh can correct me if I'm wrong, but let's say 25 to 30% of the people who are doing bootcamp joined mastermind in order to do it. And, and hopefully that's a fair, hopefully I got that about right. Um, I know it's a lot of people like have joined mastermind in order to get bootcamp as opposed to just doing the bootcamp, but uh, definitely two thirds that are doing just the bootcamp and, and you're not going to go wrong either way. It's just, I would say if you're going to do mastermind at some point, um, well, let me say this on digital mastermind. One of the things I we, we realized the other day, we've been doing Mastermind now, to, correct me if I'm wrong, Cheryl, two years, year and a half, whatever, whatever it is, two years. So Josh said to about 20% are signing up for Mastermind to get the bootcamp. Um, we have never gotten a negative review from anyone. In fact, we have never gotten anything less than, oh my God, this is the most valuable thing I've ever done in my entire career. That is like the, the predominant comment, right? I mean, Cheryl sees what people review, right. You know, and Cheryl didn't always work here. She, she came here, you know, a year into the process, right. Joined us as an organization during the organization. The that the number one comment that we get is, you know, this is the most valuable thing I've ever done. You know, the content that you have here, the things you teach here are, um, you know, the, the, you know, this is the most valuable thing I've ever done. Um, in terms of, why people leave mastermind and we've only had a, a handful of people. I think of the, there's a hundred and something people in, I don't know how many people have ever dropped, but it, it might be three or something. It was time. They all gave the same answer. There's so much here. It's so valuable. And I just moved into this new role and I can't stay committed to it or whatever. Um, but that's only, you know, if you look at our churn rate, it's like, it's microscopic. Like the industry rate, I think for churn, that is the number of people who drop. At 12 months, I know it's greater than 10%. Our number is a, is, is a fraction of that. It's 1% to 3% or something after 12 months. So, um, all right, let's talk about Industry 4.0. Um, the current state. So, Cheryl, do uh, you want to quickly introduce yourself to the community? I mean, everybody knows who you are for the most part, but anybody who doesn't know Cheryl, Cheryl, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? You know, what do you, what's your background? What do you do at 4.0 Solutions, et cetera? Good morning. 
I'm glad that Josh finally uh, un unmuted my mic. Maybe he was afraid that I would interject a bit too soon. I do tend to be mouthy sometimes. So my background, um, 25 plus years of technical sales. And um, the job I had that really propelled me into Industry 4.0 interest was one in which I worked for a sensor manufacturer and um, was in charge of, I guess, a combination job, product management type, sales management type job. I was basically selling uh, remote sensing networks for um, electric power companies in North America. And I very soon found myself in the minority uh, within this particular company uh, because I was promoting internally the idea that the value was in the data and not in the sensors we were manufacturing. And I clearly saw the writing on the wall and the direction we needed to be going. And I didn't feel that the company I was working for was really, um, well, it wasn't a feeling. I knew it. I mean, the executive leadership were not taking us in that direction. They were doubling down on, you know, proprietary hardware and uh, lack of interoperability and this kind of thing. And I just, I, I, I could see where that was going and I wasn't able to uh, basically help my customers meet the needs anymore. Uh, so I left there and I did some consulting work in uh, business development for a while. And, and then I found you. <laughs> and I found out there were I'm sorry, a whole, I'm sorry uh, you're, you're sorry for that yeah. <clears throat> and I found out there were a whole lot of other people in your discord that were thinking the same things and suddenly I did not feel quite so much alone in the world in in my vision uh which was very uh encouraging um that that feeling that you're just you know the voice crying in the wilderness wherever you work is, uh, is what causes a lot of people to leave, uh, right now. So let, let's do this. It, it walkers on the Celsius wave. Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, um, let's talk about industry 4.0, the state of industry 4.0. So I, I got this question the other day, Hey Walker. So, you know, you talk about industry 4.0 all the time real quick for our definitions. When I talk industry 4.0, I'm not talking about the EU standard that piece of garbage standard that they wrote at the early, at the beginning of the 2010 decade. Uh, good people, shitty standard. Uh, but that that's a perfect example of people taking a position, you know, in the, the EU took a position on what industry 4.0 is. And because they publicly stated what that position is, they've, they've, they haven't come off of it. They're, even though they're wrong, they're clearly wrong. They're seeing net job loss. Um, they're seeing very, very, uh, low adoption. They're seeing decreased efficiency in manufacturing, not increased. Why? Because their maturity model is flawed. The approach that they go through to help transform organizations is flawed. They believe that digital transformation starts with computerization. That's fucking ridiculous. It starts with education. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Just throwing computers someplace doesn't mean you're getting mature. I know lots of people who have computers in their house who are morons. Okay. They're, they didn't get any smarter simply because they have a computer. They got smarter when they were taught how to use that computer and leverage it as a tool. Just because you give a hammer to a monkey doesn't mean they're mean they're going to pick up a nail and, and pound the nail in, right? You have to teach them how to use. You have to either have to show them, you got to model it, right? It starts with education. 
that a basic fundamental flaw in the EU industry 4.0 standard. So when we talk about industry 4.0, we're not talking about that standard. We're talking about the fourth industrial revolution, the automation of business processes, the transformation of data into information so that you can make better decisions. Okay. There's a whole, there's a big long list of what that process looks like, right? There's this big long list of what that process looks like. Okay. When you're digitally transforming the fourth industrial revolution, what does that actually mean? How do you automate business processes? Okay. We talked about this a million times, but it, it, it happens in two big steps and there's a, there's an end goal. Okay. Step number one is becoming a smart company. Okay. You're becoming a smart business. You do that by connecting, collecting, and storing all your data. You analyze and visualize that data generally in manufacturing execution to begin with. Okay. You basically turn that data into information and put it on screens for human beings to make decisions, informed decisions. Then you put a layer on top of that, which is data lakes, machine learning, algorithms, artificial intelligence to find patterns in that data that human beings can't see on the screens. They can't see with the naked eye. Okay. You find patterns. Then you predict the future from those patterns. You report the, the potential future and then you solve the problem. Do you know what happens when you become a smart business? The first thing you have to do in order to become a smart business is to recognize that the primary commodity in your business is data. It's not the product you create. Okay. The second step after you've become a smart business is plugging into a digital supply chain. And everything that we're going to talk about today is like, what's the status of industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution, especially in the West. I'll tell you, go to fucking Walmart right now, go to the grocery store, go to target, go on Amazon. Okay. Um, go to the gas station. Um, try to try to hire somebody to make modifications to your home. I want to add a, an addition to my house. Okay. The reality is, is the, the supply chain issues that we're seeing right now are a direct result of a lack of vision in the early 2010s. There were companies that understood that becoming a smart business is something we need to do for the future, not just for today, but for the future. And then there are many companies who said, fuck that. I'll worry about the next union contract and I'll, I'll worry about what, what stick with our lean six Sigma black belt approach or our, or our Kaizen approach to continuously improving our flawed processes as opposed to focusing on transforming our organization top to bottom. If you look at, we were talking about the supply chain issue earlier. So let's talk about this piece, the reality about industry 4.0. Okay. Um, how do we know that things are not going well in terms of industry 4.0? So Cheryl asked me that this morning. I was like, you know, the, the, the state of industry 4.0 right now in the West, and I'm only going to talk about in the West right now. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Tate, spot on. Tesla is not a car company. They're a data company. Okay. Um, they're a data company who makes cars. Gigafactory isn't a manufacturing facility that makes cars. Gigafactory is a manufacturing facility that collects data to make anything, to make anything better, right? That, I mean, Tesla is a data company top to bottom. General Motors is not a data company. General Motors is an extension of the federal government. 
and they're even more bureaucratic. And is any, I mean, I have worked with suppliers for GM and I've worked for GM directly in, you know, not in the last eight years, give or take. That's why I can mention it without getting fucking sued. But the, and by the way, they will sue you talk shit. Go ahead and have a NDA with general motors and talk shit about them publicly. You will get fucking sued. doesn't matter if you're right. doesn't matter if you're telling the truth. Okay. doesn't matter. You will. Okay. Um, the, the General Motors is an extension of the federal government, <clears throat> really. I mean, they only exist because they were bailed out. Mm -hmm. Did General Motors get better after they got bailed out? I, I, I'm interested in hearing that from the community. Does anyone think that General Motors is, a, is the gold standard for manufacturing and industry? And if, they, and if you do believe so, tell me why you know, in the comments here, right? I, I, as, as <laughs> government motors, as much as I've looked at general motors over the last, say, five years in terms of their, you know, they've invested in other companies. They, when general motors puts their hand, puts their imprint there, gets their DNA on another company. It means almost certainly the first step is less progress, less innovation, more talking, more paralysis by analysis, more, we're going to do it this way because we've always done it that way. Tesla did not modeled, model their company after General Motors. I, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day, yesterday actually, and she said to me, hey, you know, um, you, a, a lot of people complain about Tesla, like their quality issues. She said, what is, your, what is your take on that, their quality issues? And I said, well, I've bought two Teslas in the last, um, well, since last November, I think I got, or October. I got my first one in October, and then I got my Model S in January. So uh, two brand new Teslas. And, and she asked me, like, well, what was that experience like? And I said, it was amazing. <laughs> like all the stuff that people complain about Tesla, I haven't experienced any of that. The only problem I had buying my cars was I didn't get my floor mats for my Model S. I had to wait three weeks because of the supply chain issues. <laughs> the, the One of the few things that Tesla doesn't control the manufacturing of was the floor mats. And guess what? They showed up late. But the car I got was elite when we just went to Colorado. When we just went to Colorado for the Shaw Classic and I'm using full self-driving. Dude, that was that experience of driving 15 hours to, to Colorado in my Tesla was... It was like getting in a plane and setting the autopilot and then sh and then ending up there, even though I was driving and I still had to touch the steering wheel every 15 seconds or so before. So the car wouldn't yell at me while it was in autopilot. But it's a completely different experience from charging the car and the, the rest to uh, to being able to have a real conversation while I'm driving and the car is taking care of everything for me. I looked at how much I've spent in electricity relative to fuel over the last eight months, and I've saved almost $1,000, okay? When I looked at the credits I'm going to get, someone had asked me, you know, why did you spend $100,000 on a Tesla? I said, I didn't spend $100,000 on a Tesla. I made $300,000 by buying a Tesla. 
$300,000 is how much money I will make by buying a Tesla over five years. When you take how much I'm saving in electricity, but more importantly, the, the revenue generated from owning that Tesla, filming content inside of that Tesla, that's $300,000. Okay. I, I, I have, I bought a Tesla so that I could put my money where my mouth is. And let me say this, uh, the Tesla has far, far exceeded what my expectations were. So now when I get a rental car and I get in a piece of shit GM, or I get in a piece of shit Ford vehicle, the only Ford vehicle I have been impressed with is the F-150 Lightning. That's the only vehicle I have been impressed with from Ford in the last couple of years. And I own a Ford. I own a Ford F-250 diesel pickup truck, and I love it. But, you know, one is the Model T, and the other one is a space shuttle. So I have a question. Go ahead. If government intervention, like the bailouts, nearly always stifles innovation instead of the opposite, how do you feel about the U.S. bill? I think it's the infrastructure bill. Yep. Um, expanding chip manufacturing in the U.S. So, I mean, I, I so let, let's talk about this piece here, okay? Why is it we don't manufacture chips in the United States to begin with? That's the question you have to ask. Like, why, where do our chips come from? They come from China. They come from Taiwan. You know, why, why is it we don't manufacture them here? So for the cheap labor, right? The lay person, people need to understand the way manufacturing works in industry 3.0 is all of the small light things are manufactured overseas. Mm -hmm. So all the small light things are manufactured overseas. Why? Because, I mean, like, I remember the first time I went to China and I, I went to China for a U.S. manufacturer. Okay, so they were based here in the United States. They had a manufacturing facility in China. Everybody lived at the facility. They had a campus. They had a, a fence all the way around it. They had a like a college dormitory. They had a cafeteria. All the employees, they had come from all over the country. They were college graduates. Yeah, these are college graduates working on these machines, by the way. They're, they're coming. They're young people. They've left the agrarian you know, their farms and stuff out in the middle of nowhere in China, and they've come and they're living on a campus for enter in some manufacturer. They, I, I, when they were making like three or $4 a day us. So, I mean, they lived good lives, by the way, relative, relative to the other people around, they were like, but it was only three or $4 a day us. That's, that's with them having, Two of their meals every single day paid for by their employer. Their housing's paid for by their employer. Like they were, they were literally making three or four dollars a day. So anything that you can manufacture that's really light and really small, and you can pack into a container, you have a massive, massive financial incentive to manufacture that overseas. So number one. You have to understand why things are manufactured overseas. If it's light and it's small and I can manufacture it at scale really, really inexpensively and then pay a huge amount of money in shipping, but I get tens of thousands of units or million units of that in one container, then it's easy to justify manufacturing overseas. That's why our chips are manufactured overseas. Do you know that when you manufacture chips overseas, 
or you manufacture them here in the United States. So I've been to many semiconductor facilities here in the U.S. Uh, like in Oregon, there's a big semiconductor um, industry in Oregon, right? For example, outside of Portland, if you go outside of Portland and you see them manufacturing and then you compare it to the quality of the chips made in China and Taiwan, there's no comparison. It's a higher quality chip made here in the U.S. They have much lower waste rates. The difference is it costs you so much more in labor to do it here in the United States that the only chips we make here are the ones where the 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 materials that go into it are so expensive. We got to keep the quality. We have to have the yield really, really, really high, or we can't afford to have a three or four week wait while it's shipped shipped from China or Taiwan. All right, so that's why chips aren't made here. Okay. So what did this bill do? Here's the problem with the bill. I, and I, I support the bill that's going to move semiconductor chips here into the United States. But the problem is, is that the bill earmarks those dollars for specific semiconductor companies. So they ha they're not going to be competing with anyone for the dollars. So they have no incentive whatsoever to deliver. This is why government, and I, I'm not an anti-government guy. I want government to do the things government's good at. Like, why are why is government good at policing? Like, why is it that your local police, they're government employees, but they seem to be really fucking good at their jobs? Like, why are police officers great at their jobs, it seems like, in general, but the person who works at the DMV is terrible? Like, is anyone here going to defend <laughs> the person who works at the DMV? You're going to defend the police officer. You're not going to defend... The person at the DMV. Why? This is a, an economic argument. Well, police departments are supported by the revenue they generate by doing their job really, really well, by seizing drug money, by pulling people over and giving them fucking tickets. You, they, the police departments are supported by those dollars. They have an incentive to be really good at their job, financial incentive. And so they are. That's why government is good at policing. But if you, if you flip it to the other side, you have to always ask, what's the incentive here? No, the, the problem with the bill here is, is the bill going to show us a significant increase in the number of chips that we manufacture here in the United States and solve our supply chain issue? No. Why? We already know that. Anybody in my place knows that because they, they didn't bake the incentive into the bill. They cooked the books. The outcome has already been determined. It's n amount of dollars to this suite of suite uh, chip manufacturers. It's not we have n amount of dollars and let's put it up for competitive bid. I mean, how many of you guys work in water wastewater? Right? Let's do this: the water wastewater argument. Water waste municipalities say that they put their water wastewater automation projects up for competitive bid. Okay, they they call it competitive bid. Does, is anyone here going to make the argument that it's actually a competitive bid? And the answer is no. Nobody. And if you do, I know you don't work in municipal wastewater. Okay. So, Same thing for electric power, power so utilities. How do they cook the books there? So how do they? How does the the government um, decide the outcome, but under the guise of competitive bid? Well, it's really quite simple. They write into the specification, they, they will put requirements in the specification 
that filters out all of the people except for the one that they want to win the bid. Okay, or what they'll do is they'll write into the specification, you must use this product from this company. Well, the only way to use this product from this company is to hire this company to do the work for you, right? They cook the books instead of making it a competitive environment. All right, so let's go to industry 4.0 and supply chain piece, all right? What is the problem with our supply chain right now? Why is it that if you go anywhere right now, you know, um, our shelves are empty? Well, Cheryl, you, do you tell me <laughs> what you think, uh, you, why you think the shelves are empty? Well, I said something about the just-in-time manufacturing policies and years so and years, years of doing that helped create the mess. What is just in time? Wanting to manufacture um, only what you have materials available to do at the moment and not wanting to warehouse a lot of inventory and over and keep the overhead of that. And what um, and why is that? Why 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 is it um, so just in time basically means that you don't you don't buy a lot of raw materials. If you look at manufacturing, there's there's two types of manufacturing. You have the the um, the industrial acquisition of raw material, right? Mining and stuff to get the 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 base elements that that become the sub assemblies that go into whatever your manufacturing is. So you have the transformate. You have the acquisition of raw materials. That's one type of. So that would be like mining. Okay. It would be like your gas companies, the one that pull argon out of the sky, that kind of stuff. So you've got that type of industry. Then you have the transformative manufacturers, those who are taking raw materials and not converting them into finished goods that go to the consumers, but converting them into things that other manufacturers are going to buy to make the consumer goods. And sometimes those steps are multiple. So I may have three transformative manufacturers in, you know, uh, in an additive manufacturing process to get you to the sub assemblies that are going to go into the finished goods, right? So you could have the supply chain could be like five, six, it could be 50 links that goes from raw material to consumer for any specific product or good. And we All can't do that anymore. We correct. can't do that anymore because we can't order only what we need exactly when we need it because it's not going to be available. And we, and we can't. And so one of the fundamental flaws in that, type of manufacturing that and that's the industry 3.0 approach for digital supply for supply chain mm -hmm. is the, if i'm a link in the supply chain i only talk to two links i talk to the link directly upstream for me and i talk to the link directly downstream so i only talk to the links i buy from and i only talk to the links i sell to that's it okay with just in time manufacture just in time supply chain just in time manufacturing i am counting on the link upstream for me to get me my raw materials or my sub assemblies right before I need to use them. Okay. Now, when everything's running smoothly, 80, 90% of the time, I've got what I need to manufacture what my customer needs. Okay. Smooth, smoothly. And we have the manufacturing capacity. Correct. <laughs> to produce. What happened? To meet the demand right over over the last 30 years we've been doing just in time supply chain for about 30 years give or take the global economy got used to getting everything just in time and then we had a catastrophic 
disruption uh, w because of the pandemic. Okay. And so I'm going to pause right here for a second and tell you guys a quick story. So uh, when the pandemic started in, um, for us, it was really March of 2020. Uh, me and my family all packed up into our RV and we went down to South Padre Island, six of us in my fifth wheel. And we just sort of isolated, you know, and I, I was, I had paid a bunch of money to, I had a financial advisor was like, Hey, we're doing these weekly reports, economic reports and stuff. And you can spend, you know, it's $10,000 basically pay $10,000. And I was going to get this report every week. And it was going to give me data that the rest of the world wasn't seeing. It was only like, you know, the people who were paying for it were seeing, right. It was, I was buying this information at the same time I had you know, I have data scientists that work for me and stuff. We were doing analysis of data. So epidemiological <laughs> data, economic data on, you know, on a weekly basis, we we're processing it at like every Thursday. I think there was like 35 other data science firms that were doing the same thing. And we were, and, and basically we were, we were drawing conclusions, right? So how many, you know, what do we believe based on the data we have right now? You know, what's the R factor here? How many people are going to get sick? How many people are going to die? And then what's the economic impact going to be? And if you looked, we had a chart that basically we plotted every pandemic from like the late 19th century all the way till now. And it basically had two data points on it. Data point number one was economic impact. How severe was the economic impact of that pandemic? And then also mortality. And basically the further apart the numbers were, the, 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 the further apart the data points were on the graph, the more you knew which one you had to focus on. So like if mortality is really low and economic impact is really high, then your mitigation needs to be around economic impact. But if mortality is really high and economic impact is, is relatively low, then you got to focus on mitigating mortality. This was the first pandemic where we, we mitigated the wrong way. Okay. So it, and my, I don't want to say wrong way. We mitigated in the way we hadn't mitigated before. We focused on the data point that the chart wasn't telling us to focus on. The chart was telling us the economic impact was going to be far more devastating, mm -hmm. far more devastating than the mortality. We knew this in April of 2020. Okay. And by the way, I mean, I posted on Facebook mm -hmm. some of the data. It got me in a lot of trouble for posting that, but I did. My family has known, my team, everyone who works at Intellic Integration, Everyone who works at 4.0 Solutions, my entire family, they have known the same data I've known since April 2020. And there's, and my team can come on here and tell you that we knew in April 2020, Walker was telling us in May of 2020 to save our money, make no big purchases, save our money. And he is still telling us, save your money, make no big purchases. Here's what the economic impact is going to be. This is when we're going to see it. All this stuff was predicted. I'm not the only person who knows it, but I, I know that the percentage of people who are aware of what the actual economic impact was going to be is pretty small. Okay. Why? Just in time supply chain. Okay. How long will it take us? When is it that this, will our supply chain issues end? Cheryl? When it's will it not it's not going away? Not because going. it wasn't just about the pandemic. So the supply chain issues aren't going to end. So if you read articles that says, hey, we're going to, you know, we're not going to see the supply chain fix in 2022, maybe end of 2023. No, not in 2023, not in 2024, not in 2025, not in 2026. 
And the reason I know that is because the only way we're going to fix it is through digital transformation, through a digital supply chain, where all the links in the supply chain are talking to all the other links, not just the ones up and downstream from one another. Okay, here's why. If we were to stick with the existing model, which is I only talk to the links up and I only talk to the links down and a, and a, a disruption five links up from me is going to impact my ability, my, my price and my lead time for my customers. I don't know. I do not know that until it trickles down to the link directly above me. And that could be months. Okay. And also in order to overcome the gaps that we have in the supply chain now. And, and there's basically a supply chain for every product. Think of it that way. So there are hundreds of millions or billions of individual supply chains. And so if you look across, you know, it's some supply chains are better than others. Like for example, it just so happens that the, the completely vertically integrated, digitally integrated supply chains are fine. <laughs> okay, so if, if, if you're a manufacturer who's connected who is digitally connected to the full supply chain. Including is, customers. Including customers, you are fine. That is why we are seeing market share in digital companies exploding, right? That's why we're seeing it exploding. But if you are not, if you are still on a legacy link to link to link to link supply chain, you are fucked. <laughs> not only are you fucked, there's no way for you to fix it. Your primary focus needs to be become a data company effective tomorrow. We're going to become a data company effective tomorrow. What does that mean? So let me explain this piece. I never talk about this because I, I try not to get into the mechanics of manufacturing that often, right? What you would learn in business school. But how are manufacturers organized? The answer is manufacturers are organized around markets and products. The center of the universe is their specific market or the specific products they make. And when you look at the organization, when you've got leadership, you got operations and you have finance and marketing, right? When you look at how they're broken out, they are all broken out centered around the market or the product, okay? A transformed organization is organized around data acquisition and conversion into information. No matter what product I make, no matter what market I serve. These organizations, the state of industry 4.0, are still being run by, by leaders who are focused on the market and the product. They are not focused on becoming data companies. And we have, a, we have this, this client. We have many clients we're working with right now. We're working with a lot of huge companies. And one of the questions I got asked was, what's the difference between the huge company that is that, that they're being successful with this transformation and the huge company that is not. And the answer is it's leadership. It's the person at the absolute top. So there's a, a company we're working with right now where we have a bunch of engineers on it. And the engineer has told me, you know, the leader of that product project has said, Hey, listen, this is a shit show. Um, you know, all their resources, all the people that should be staying in the organization are quitting and all the people who shouldn't be there are staying. Right. Um, and, you know, we have to have an exit strategy, right? We, we have to have an exit strategy to, to break off with this customer. And so I met with all of our engineers and I had our legal team come in and look at the contracts and tell me how long are we committed for. And so I had all the data because I hadn't been really paying attention, right? And I, 
I ha- I, I sat in on a couple of meetings just to see what is the what's the status here. And there were things that just jumped out at me. Okay. So like in this customer, they are they they do not have a culture of innovation. So what is a culture of innovation? So and in, in, in maybe you guys see this. The culture of innovation is you encourage people to make mistakes. Ready, fire, aim. Make mistakes, recover quickly. You you encourage people to make mistakes. In fact, you incentivize people to fuck up. Why do you do that? Why would you why would making mistakes be a good thing? Why would it be a good thing? It can indicate a couple of things. Number one, you're incompetent. Or number two, you're taking risk. Okay? Well, here, here's the point. You have to assume the people who work for you are not incompetent because that's an HR issue. <laughs> so let's assume everyone who works for you is competent. Okay? Then if, if people aren't making mistakes, it means they're not taking enough risk. And transformation, think about how companies, the most transformative organizations, where they come out of from, you could come out of. There are a lot of, there are a lot, a lot of smart people on here, right? Do you got, do the smart people make more or less mistakes than the not so smart people? They better be making more because otherwise they're not smart because you only learn one way. How do you learn? You learn from failure. We do not learn from success. We only learn from failure. So if your organization's not making a lot of mistakes, okay, if you're not making a lot of mistakes, you are learning nothing. You are learning nothing. But I just organ- want to interject. It's really hard to be innovative in an industry that is extremely risk averse. And of course, I say this coming from electric power. (laughs) You know, that's an extremely risk averse industry because reliability is king. But just second to that is manufacturing. Manufacturing is historically really, really risk averse. Why? Why? That's a good question. I I can't think of a succinct answer other than that is the culture. And do you think it's related only to what you were just talking about, which is not encouraging um, individuals to take chances? Um, Let's do that. Let's ask this question. Are drugs manufactured outside of the United States safe? Some of them, yes. Would you buy drugs manufactured in Mexico? I might if I knew the company. If Would you buy drugs that are manufactured in Brazil? Probably not unless I could research. Okay. Our you're, dr- you're picking another extremely risk-averse industry, right? Right. At right what? up in... Right, right. Wait. wait. Hold on. Life sciences was risk averse until we needed the vaccine in four months. Mm. Did I mean anybody who works for Pfizer, Moderna, all those guys, right? All the ones who did the vaccines. If we if we could get them to come on here and tell the truth, um, 
all the rules went out the window. Okay, so I get your point, and I'm just going to jump right to the state of industry 40 in 2022 is abysmal because they're not feeling the pain enough yet to innovate. People are selfish. So are the executives feeling the pain? So is the executive is Mary Barra herself feeling the pain? No. Who is feeling the pain of GM's inadequacies in GM's failures? It's the rank and file in Western civilization. The people working for him. Does Mary Barra give a shit about anyone who doesn't live in her gated community? Mm -hmm. Honestly. And if you say yes, prove it. Mm -hmm. Show me what it is Mary Barra does in her life that indicates to you that she is selfless in one way or another. So why am I a, a an Elon Musk fanboy? So I, I, I'm afraid to admit it. The reason I'm an Elon Musk fanboy is because I, I am a person. I'm a principled capitalist. I put my money where my mouth is. There's nobody who works for me. Cheryl works here. There's nobody who works in my organization who's not going to say that I don't genuinely and honestly fucking stick my neck out way further than I ask anyone else to stick their neck out. I don't sacrifice more financially, take on more risks than anyone else in the organization, and that I don't honestly care about the best outcomes for humanity, my community, my family, and that that is a higher priority to me than money. Elon Musk, Elon Musk, think about what this guy has done. He has 10 kids, not because he loves children. He has 10 kids because he believes it's his responsibility to repopulate the earth. Okay. He slept on the plant floor. Look, look what happened by Elon Musk through, through his his determination to save the earth for future generations slept on the plant floor for three years, right alongside all of his engineers. And why did he do it? Because he knew the only way he was going to get Volkswagen and Ford and General Motors, all the people who are subs, all the companies that are subsidized by governments not to fail. The only way he was going to get them to do what was in the best interest of humanity was to give them a financial incentive to do so. So how do you change it? Well, we focus on giving the leaders of these organizations a financial incentive to do what's best for humanity, for their communities, for Western civilization. That's what you do. That's the flaw with semiconductors. That's the flaw in life sciences. The, the, the life sciences is a super, super highly regulated environment. Why? Is it really to protect people from shitty drugs? Do you really believe that? No, that is not the fucking reason it's highly regulated. It's highly regulated to make it next to impossible for people to compete against the people who are already there. It's the same reason. It's the same reason if you want to become a licensed electrician. Go to a, you know, go to New York State, for example, and try to become a licensed electrician in New York State. That is, you're going to open your own electrical company. Well, guess who decides whether or not you get licensed? The people you're going to compete against. So you're going to have to, you, 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 there, right? High barrier of entry is the whole point. Mm -hmm. It's literally the whole point. Were we really, were we really 
Pfizer proved, all these companies proved that you could do a vaccine in four months. Okay? As long as you got rid of the, the rules. And believe me, they threw the rules out the window. They threw the rules out the window. I, uh, I remember this. When I worked for Cargill, so I worked for Cargill in um, my, the, the very first beginning of my career from 19, I can't remember if it was 99 to 2005 or 2000 or 2005. It was one of those. I worked in a mine. It's where I got introduced to industry. Cargill is one of the, one of the it's a family owned organization. So it's a privately owned company. It's family owned. And they genuinely care about their people, honestly. And the reason why is because the family itself is still connected to all its employees, even though it's the large, I think at the time it was the largest, largest privately owned company in the world. They were uber, uber focused on safety. Now, there's a financial incentive to be safe, okay, for companies. You know, your workman's comp insurance is much lower. You're not going to have to pay out huge death benefits. I mean, it's expensive to have somebody die. And by the way, it should be. Companies should be punished financially and significantly. They should have a financial incentive to put people's safety before profits. Okay. That's, a, that's an example of our legal system and government creating an environment where you have the, they have a financial incentive to do what's right. It just so happens that Cargill actually cared about safety. So... About six years before the national, the NEC was going to implement NFPA 70E, which is, and those of you who are not in electrical, NFPA 70E is the arc flash risk. Basically, uh, um, it, 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 it put a massive amount of regulation around being able to open electrical cabinets, the type of equipment you need to be wearing if you were going to open up electrical cabinets, right? NFPA 70E was centered all around protecting electricians and technicians from um, arc flash events, high heat where you get burned really, really bad. Look up, you could go on YouTube and look up arc flash event and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The NFPA 70E standard was put in place to, to make manufacturers put the six foot barrier in front of the panel, uh, make you wear a 40 cal suit depending upon what the total um, load might the potential load would be if you went phase to phase that kind of thing and it was going to burn somebody at Cargill that became gospel like if you didn't wear if you were not wearing your arc flash gear as an electrician like I was you were that was a zero tolerance violation you were fired immediately there was no discussion there was no do not pass go do not collect two hundred dollars it didn't matter how long it took us to reset the mine after a power event, we had to put our full 40 cal suit on, go through every switch gear, restart everything. It, 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 like, it made us repower the mine, took an hour instead of 10 minutes. What Cargill did that because they genuinely cared about our safety because it wasn't being mandated yet. Okay. I, I left Cargill and a couple of years later, I went to work for a steel company after the, the NFPA 70 was activated. So, when I was at Cargill six years earlier, it, it was gospel. Six years before the law went into effect, it was gospel. Two years after the law in, went into effect, I went to go work for a publicly traded steel company. Mm -hmm. Okay. And NFPA 70E didn't even exist. And when I brought it up in my first electrical meeting, all the fucking electricians, supervisors, everyone looked at me like, 
I was from Mars. They'd never even heard of it. Well, I found out that the actuaries in the organization calculated what is the likelihood that someone's going to die in an arc flash event. And it was really, really low. It was super low. Like, turns out arc flash events don't happen that often. They happen. They're very, very rare. So, you know, if you look at Heinrich's action and triangle and the total number of at-risk behaviors before you get to a death, right? This is a social science thing. But the actuary said, you know what? It's the money we would have to spend on becoming NFPA 70E compliant doesn't outweigh how much we're going to, the, the risk of having somebody die from an arc flash event. So let's not worry about coming, becoming compliant. And that's literally what happened. Okay. That's where government can, can step in and create the financial incentive for them to do the right thing. Here, okay. here's, my point. here's my right. Here's my point. <laughs> leaders, transformative leaders, not enough transformative leaders exist. Okay. Not enough transformative leaders exist. Leaders who are focused on doing the right thing. So how are we going to fix industry 4.0? How are we going to fix it? Well, number one, manufacturers need to focus on the board of directors need to fire their CEOs who have MBAs to starting tomorrow, need to move the CTO <laughs> into the role of CEO starting tomorrow. Okay. Number two, you have to create a culture of innovation. So stop, stop looking for people to blame for every problem and start encouraging people to try new ideas, fail and recover quickly. Number three, you need to make data the centerpiece of your organization. So throw out the manufacturing playbook that focuses on market and product and bring in the industry 4.0 play, playbook, which says we're going to become a smart business first, plug in digital supply chain second by focusing on being a data company first. Okay, that, that's how you fix it. But it, what I'm saying is this. In light of the fact that we have major supply chain issues, we have major supply issues, and they are not going to get better, and we are not seeing an increase. We are not seeing a exponential effect on manufacturers specifically, because that's my purview. That means that the current state of industry 4.0 is fucking abysmal. It's abysmal. It's abysmal. And, I, and I'm going to be having a meeting with one of our clients tomorrow. And I'm going to tell them, you guys are fucked. You're, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. And, and, and the reason why is I don't see a future for Western civilization that isn't built on a digital supply chain. I don't see one. The status quo will not be able to sustain us. And we don't have the incentives in place right now for people like Mary Barra to care. So I, I'd love, by the way, I'd love Mary Barra to come on here and defend herself. I know she's super smart. She's great at debating. I'm better at debating than she is. Okay. I'm also a peon relative to the CEO GM, but it, it, I, if Mary Barra wants to come on here and defend herself or Jim Farley from Ford wants to come on here and defend himself, I'm all for it. I did. I'd let him come on here and I'd let him blast me if they want to. Okay. Most CEOs are political animals. Yes. Is, is Elon Musk a, a political animal? Well, he has political opinions, but his motivations are different. Uh, let, me, let me answer a couple of questions in here. Uh, New, well, Newton, or let's do Jason. How would you convince IT AR compliant companies 
to industry to introduce industry 4.0 the the answer is move start by your proof of concept outside of the purview of of uh itar compliance so start in an area of the organization where being itar compliant doesn't require is isn't isn't required so that you can get your feet wet without having to worry about falling within um, or remaining compliant to the standard. Okay, it's the same thing I recommend with people when they're talking about, well, how do I how do I integrate my quality system without violating my ISO 9001 requirements? Well, the answer is let's focus on an area that falls outside of your ISO 9001 um um uh your standard you're the document that you have start there so you don't have to worry about compliance first then what you do is you modify what was effective to be compliant um uh how long do you think it'll take chim manufacturing companies to bring themselves up to speed in the u.s to be competitive if it's 36 months jeremy i'd be impressed i think the issue you're going to run into here is what is their incentive to be competitive especially since they're starting out profitable with federal dollars. <clears throat> I mean, how does that how does that generally play out? I mean, what you know, what why is it companies? I, I own an integration company, right? Why? It, let's say I have a five million dollar project with my customer. How often does the company give me five million dollars before I've done anything? And what happens if they give me the five million dollars? First off, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it up front because we understand that the re the slow release of cash creates the incentive to deliver. But that isn't what's happening with this bill. Uh, Josh, anything else? Uh, Annabelle, artificial monopoly. The FDA has reduced the rate at which life-saving drugs get to people who need the drugs. Yes. So I want to I want to say this to put a bow on it. We should have seen a huge move this year, eight months. And, and that doesn't mean that we don't have hundreds of companies reaching out to us and stuff. What I'm saying is the move that the move that we haven't seen that we need to see is cultural. It's not that they're getting on the phone and saying we need to transform because they're doing that. They're not making the cultural changes. They, they're, they're, allowing the, they're allowing the bureaucratic systems within their organizations to derail their innovation and they're okay with it. They're okay with burning the capital and not seeing progress. They're okay with it. As long as they're saying we got something in where something's going right now. I mean, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. You should see their reaction when I walk in and I go, what makes you think you can become a data company when the person who's leading the company knows nothing about data? When I say that to a board, when I literally point to the CEO and I'm like, you, you know, you're, you're a man, you haven't been a manufacturing engineer in 35 years. You got your MBA 34 years ago. You're basically a bean counter. Like, and I say that. And then I ask him, how will you, you tell me what your digital strategy is. How are you going to become a data company? And they just look at me like, who the fuck do you think you are? That's literally how they look at me. And the second they do that, I know you're going nowhere. doesn't matter. I don't need you to work with me. 
I don't need your money. I could never work the rest of my life ever again. Not one day. I don't have to work. So I'm not trying to get you to buy something. I'm getting, trying to get you to change the way you think so that the people who count on you, your employees, your customers, your communities, the people who count on you to keep your cities alive. Look, if you want to know what's the downside of manufacturers not digitally transforming, go to Pittsburgh, go to Buffalo, mm -hmm. go to Cleveland, go to Detroit. If you want to know what the downside is, go there. Go to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. That's the downside. Now imagine that happens at scale across all of the West. Holy shit. Um, Liam Doyle. Companies should be data-driven but still need to focus on their products and markets. Data should be used to link supply chain, internal production, and markets. Mm. All right. So I'd love... I want to... I know we're eight minutes over. <laughs> Let me argue with Liam here real quick. Um, <sighs> Liam, you're almost there. <laughs> what is the future of manufacturing? Like, I, 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 I would say the problem, and Liam, I, I agree with you here, but what, what you're stating is an intermediary step. Remember, you, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and it has millions of steps to go through the thousand miles. Okay. Depending upon how big your, your step is, you, uh, or th it, it smaller, right? What is the future of manufacturing? Is it specialized manufacturing? Is it I have an idea for a product, therefore I had to build a facility, buy the equipment, and manufacture that product myself, even though I'm not an expert in manufacturing? No. It's hyper-specialization. It's people who specialize in manufacturing everything. It's contract manufacturing. This is why people don't this is why people don't understand that Tesla is should be valued at $3 trillion. They are the only living, breathing contract manufacturer on the fucking planet. Gigafactory does not build cars. It builds anything. Gigafactory is not designed to build cars. It's designed to build anything. It's also designed to be a microgrid. It's also designed to supply power to the neighborhood that it's, that it's in. Gigafactory is not a manufacturing facility. It's an industrial hub where you can also manufacture anything and generate power and distribute power. The future of manufacturing is contract manufacturing by specialists who specialize in manufacturing. We originally thought, we originally thought that it was going to be 3D printing. And I think 3D printing will play a huge role in manufacturing. Don't get me wrong. But I think we're pivoting more to additive and discrete manufacturing at, the con at, at a contract level, as opposed to manufacturing everything using 3D printers. But Liam, you're correct, except it's not being data-driven mm -hmm. to do my manufacturing. It's to be a data company to have someone else do my manufacturing for me. Okay. Um, all right. Any other questions on there I need to get? 
Hey, what would I, I didn't watch this. I didn't watch the chat. Was the viewership good? Like were my tangents? Did we did we lose viewers? How did it go? Cheryl, Josh. Josh can tell you better than I can. I wasn't paying attention either. Josh, good numbers. I realized I turned myself off. Yes, everything went great. Okay, perfect. Awesome. I appreciate everyone. Um, hopefully I, I, I riffed the whole thing. I, I did an outline, but then I riffed it. And the reason I riffed it was I wanted you guys to hear my unfiltered opinion, what my state of mind is at this exact moment and what it is you need to go back to your clients, to your employers and say today. Okay. Um, and always you got to the money statements at the very end. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, because when you, when you get on a roll, you say the best, most concise stuff. And your answer to Liam really was, excuse me. Are you choking? The answer is yes. <laughs> All right. I appreciate everybody. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Uh, like, subscribe, share this, this podcast with someone who might need to hear it. And uh, thank you guys again for watching.